Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 189, End of Act 2. Last time we talked about the so-called Great Schism, the visit of three papal legates to Constantinople and their decision to excommunicate the Patriarch. That year, 1054, was an extremely busy one in terms of our narrative. It was the first year after the truce was signed with the Pechenegs, and so Western troops were still on high alert. The debased gold coins were now circulating out into the distant provinces. The Turks returned to Armenia, and Pselos fled Constantinople. Let's deal with those last two developments now. As I mentioned last episode... Selos was hauled before a church synod to defend himself against the accusation that he was promoting heretical teaching. Selos's fondness for Plato and the scholarship that had built on that great philosopher's work had got the attention of the ecclesiastical establishment. Selos was cleared of the charges, but had to sign a formal declaration of his orthodox faith. The ordeal clearly upset our historian a great deal. His writing about the patriarch and the emperor who failed to protect him, are critical, to say the least. Pselos followed several of his friends, who also left the capital during this time. He headed to Mount Olympus in Bithynia, where he joined a monastery. This put him out of harm's way, but he did not enjoy the ascetic life. He was a social animal, who thrived on high court politics. He would come scurrying back as soon as Monomachos had passed away. As for the Turks, the truce agreed between emperor and sultan clearly held little fear for Tugril Beg. The sultan personally led a huge raid into Byzantine Armenia that same summer. As we've talked about before, it was in 1040 that the Seljuks won a major battle which opened up the conquest of Iran and Iraq to them. This process certainly has echoes of the original explosion of the Arabs into the Middle East. The various provinces of the Caliphate had been living independent existences for the past 150 years. The balance of power between them had been solid enough to ensure that no one region could dominate the others. Now that balance had shifted, 
The steppe nomads were a decisive military weapon, and now that they had coalesced under Tugril's leadership, it was pretty clear that no one could stop them. Tugril made his capital at Isfahan, in central Iran, and consciously adopted the style of an Islamic ruler. Like the Arabs before him, he would make use of Iranian bureaucratic expertise and maintain the system of law and taxation already in place. In many ways, the mechanisms of the caliphate were being revived, including a central field army paid from the tax system. But these were early days in the formation of the Seljuk state. At this point, Tugril knew that the steppe tribes, still living their nomadic life, were key to his success. They had not followed him to the cities of Iran. They had spread out along the grasslands, leading northwest into Azerbaijan. They settled there at his pleasure and owed him military service in return. But such agreements have to be managed in a traditional step way. In order to ensure their loyalty, Tugril had to show that he was still able to lead them to new lands in person. By using his professional army to carry out a raid, much bigger hauls of booty were possible, leaving the tribes in the rear very content with the sultan's rule. The logical place to lead such a raid were the Armenian mountains. Not only did it have the grass needed to sustain the herds, but it also suited the sultan's geopolitical aims. He wanted to make sure Azerbaijan was safe for his followers, and so he needed to flatten any threats lurking up in the mountains. This is one of those historical dynamics that plays out over and over again. The geography of the Middle East led first the Sassanids, then the Arabs, and now the Turks, into Armenia. No natural barrier prevents invasion from this direction, and so it becomes strategically important to occupy the mountain heights. Bordering those mountains were a host of Islamic peoples who the Sultan now brought under his yoke. This included the Emir of Duvin and the Marwanids, both of whom were technically Roman clients. In the face of the huge army the Sultan led to their doorstep, it was only natural that both powers immediately pledged their loyalty to the Seljuks and began raiding Roman territory when plunder was needed. The Sultan's huge army then marched through Tau all the way to Theodosiopolis. The further the Turks moved into Roman territory, the less people they found to enslave. The Byzantines had seen them coming, and moved as many people as they could inside the forts which dotted the region. The imperial army was gathering at Caesarea, and so the sultan turned around and decided to make his way home via Lake Van. The key Roman fortress in the area was Manzikert, which the sultan surrounded and besieged. We've actually talked about this incident before. In Backer Rewards episode 8, we discussed the use of Greek fire on land. Manzikert's defences were sturdy, and the Turks had a huge army to feed, and so couldn't stay for long. But their siege weapons were doing damage, and so the Byzantine commander asked for a volunteer 
to ride out and torch their largest catapult. We're told that a Latin knight took up the challenge, so possibly a Norman mercenary. He rode out and tossed pots of Greek fire at the device until it started to burn. Whatever the truth of this incident, the Sultan ordered his men to move on, and they returned to Azerbaijan. Despite this invasion, Tugrul Beg wasn't looking to start a war with Romania. The following year, he would enter Baghdad for the first time, and he would spend the next eight years fighting wars of consolidation within caliphal lands. But his expedition had fully opened the eyes of his followers to the possibilities within the mountains. The steppe tribes now began using their homes in Azerbaijan as launching pads for raids into Armenia and Georgia. The mountains became an extension of the steppe, a place to find pasture, slaves and booty. Their raids will be continuous from now on, and yet still unpredictable. The Roman authorities, used to dealing with opponents from settled states, will be thoroughly confused and vexed by this process. The Roman response to that 1054 invasion suggests that High Command had already reverted to something like the tactics they'd used for so many centuries against the Caliphate. Within Armenia, people were encouraged to head for the hills and hide. Meanwhile, a full imperial army was forming to the rear. But the clock was ticking for the empire. Monomachos's decision to debase the coinage was like forcing a pay cut on the army against its will. What he needed was a decade of peace where he could slowly claw money back into the treasury and stabilise the currency. Instead, the continuous Turkic raids will force emperors to keep paying men to chase shadows in the mountains. Strategically, there will also be much confusion about how best to respond to the Turks. There were no barriers to them entering the mountains, and as we've seen, confronting nomads directly was a dangerous business. A logical solution would have been to revert entirely to the tactics perfected under Nicephorus' focus. To accept that Armenia was going to be raided and lie in wait for the Turks to make a mistake before ambushing them. But the expertise necessary to deploy these tactics was no longer so easily at hand. And ideologically, psychologically, those tactics were those of the underdog. They suited a society on the rise after centuries of being beaten down. The Empire of 1054 was one that saw itself as the dominant power in the region. To abandon its positions in Armenia and Georgia would have undermined the legitimacy of their claims. That might sound like hubris given what's going to happen, but we have to keep hindsight out of this. The Romans knew the Turks were a serious threat, but it didn't occur to anyone at the time that the nomads might one day settle on the Anatolian plateau. Despite the financial crisis, Monomachos knew his duty. 
He'd already permanently settled units of Varangians and Norman mercenaries in eastern Anatolia, so that they would be ready to respond to such attacks. Now he ordered some of the western Tachmata to join them. He was trusting that the truce with the Pechenegs would hold while they were gone. Monomachos also deployed all the methods at his disposal to raise more cash. The accounts of his tax collectors were scrutinised down to the pennies, with fines imposed on those who hadn't done their job properly. Monasteries and other charitable foundations had their charters checked to make sure they weren't enjoying exemptions they weren't entitled to. Several of our historians complain bitterly about the injustices people suffered at the hands of Monomachos's men. The people-pleasing emperor was now seen as an oppressive tax collector as he scrambled to find a way out of this crisis. As I mentioned in passing a few episodes ago, the problem here was that the Byzantine tax system hadn't changed in centuries. As you might expect in a medieval society, taxation was seen by most people as a necessary evil. But in many ways, an evil. The perspective of the average farmer was that tax inspectors were all corrupt and would invent duties you owed to squeeze you dry. This was a completely understandable perspective. For people who rarely left their own village, it was almost impossible to perceive dangers a thousand miles away, or to feel grateful that a band of raiders who'd stolen all your possessions were later caught by imperial troops. For those with no literacy, papers proving that you owed more money felt like forgeries or attempts to bamboozle. And of course, sometimes, tax collectors just were corrupt. The land and hearth taxes that everyone had to pay were accepted because they had been in place for centuries and they rested on an assessment of the value of land that was broadly fair. It wasn't necessarily, though, a sense of fairness that compelled people to hand over what they owed, more just an accepted custom backed up by the threat of violence. It was very hard, therefore, to actually raise taxes. Michael IV had added a surcharge to the taxes, essentially an increase but presented as a short-term necessity. So for those of you wondering, why didn't the Romans just raise taxes to pay for the army? This is why it was so difficult. People were used to paying a certain amount, and the evidence of their eye told them that imperial officials were perfectly well paid and fed, there were no Turks in Anatolia yet, there was no seeming justification for squeezing more money from them. A series of tax revolts had rocked the empire before Monomachos came to power, and by now he'd suffered half a dozen usurpation or assassination attempts. He just didn't see a way of raising revenue by raising taxes. Hence why he debased the coins themselves. Similarly, a lot of money was escaping the exchequer's notice because it was being used in trade. The government imposed dues where they could, at annual fairs, at trading emporiums, but of course much trade went on outside of those places or behind closed doors to avoid paying tax. Everybody knew it, 
Without modern technology, it was very difficult for the government to get hold of any of this new cash washing around the system. And it wasn't just ordinary citizens who tried to find loopholes. As I just mentioned, monasteries were the experts at squeezing concessions from the government. They would present a pious case to a new emperor who was looking for legitimacy and popularity. He would hand out a tax break, and then they would keep the documentation of this in pristine condition in their archives, bringing it out and using the moral authority of their position to put pressure on the government to honour their privileges. Monomachos tried to crack down on these unpatriotic practices and is roundly condemned by our historians. Despite the corruption inherent in this, something Selos was keen to point out, monasteries were houses of God, and it was difficult to speak ill of them without bad publicity, even if, in practice, many of the bigger foundations were sophisticated capitalist machines. Monomachos needed a new source of revenue, a new region he could draw taxes from. Which brings us to a well-known but highly controversial decision. It's mentioned in three of our sources, but none give any real detail. One claims that he disbanded the army of Iberia, some 50,000 men strong, in order to gain money from them. Another says simply that he imposed a tax in Iberia and Mesopotamia that had never been collected there before. The sources claim that this was unjust and foolish, that decommissioning soldiers weakened the border defences, and that raising taxes in the mountains caused great resentment. So, what was going on here? A popular theory is that it was to do with the theme system. As you know, the theme system was designed to help ensure that there were enough soldiers to defend the land, and that the land could feed and equip them. Certain plots of land had an obligation to provide a soldier and his upkeep, and in return were exempted from certain taxes. This system seems to have been implemented across the empire during the centuries of Arab raiding. Now that the caliphate was long gone, most of the estates who owed a soldier agreed to just pay their taxes in full instead. The government would then use the extra cash to hire professional or mercenary soldiers. Based on the brief wording about Monomachos' decision, we could conclude that the emperor was applying this same system to the borderlands. As in, before those places had been exempt from some tax because they provided locals to do garrison duty, but now the emperor wanted more cash instead and told the soldiers they were no longer needed. Historian Warren Treadgold, for example, sees this as literally what happened, that throughout the mountains, thematic soldiers were relieved of their duties, thus demobilising the entire frontier just when Turkic raids were about to become a regular feature of life. If you follow this logic, then Monomachos was making a very foolish decision. These soldiers were defending their homelands and knew the terrain better than the Tachmata and other professional Byzantine troops. The collapse of the empire's eastern front can be traced directly to this decision. As the Turks overrun Anatolia, they will march unmolested through the lands that the emperor had denuded of troops. As you may be able to tell, I don't believe that that's what happened. 
When I was doing my end-of-the-century research, I found no evidence that the Romans imposed the theme system on the mountains of Armenia and Georgia. Quite the opposite. In most places it looked like the Romans installed a few garrisons and left the locals to run things as they had done for centuries. We know very little about how the rulers of Tau and Tehran organised their armed forces before the Roman takeover. So it's a big leap to apply the conditions of Anatolia to the mountains. The figure of 50,000 is also very suspicious. Even if there's truth in it, what does it refer to? Presumably the total theoretical fighting strength of the entire border region. The terms used, Iberia and Mesopotamia, are vague and open to interpretation. And anyway, these men weren't leaving their homes. If Monomachos did remove some kind of obligation from them, then surely they were still available to be recruited for individual campaigns, as men from the mountains had been throughout the century of conquest. Given we know so little about arrangements in the mountains, speculation is somewhat futile. But it seems likely that Monomachos was trying to impose some kind of tax. Independent witnesses agree that this was what he was doing, even if it's not clear what that had to do with local troops. It's possible that many Armenians and Georgians paid tax to local lords, as they had done for generations, and the emperor was trying to regularise this process, making sure the funds now reached the local stratihos instead, or indeed that Roman land assessors were being sent in to make sure that the new regions were paying as much as they should, which naturally would have been very unpopular. As I say, we just don't know enough to be sure. Our three historical sources are all writing with hindsight once Anatolia was lost, and so their opinion of Monomachos is coloured. Looking back at the Turkic invasions, it was easy to connect their success with the unpopular taxes imposed in those lands by the emperor. The reasons these historians give for Monomachos' decision betray their lack of objectivity. One says it was to pay for the emperor's love of prostitutes, a ridiculous suggestion on so many levels, while another says it was to pay for the new church complex at Mangana, the complex which was completed well before the tax was imposed. I saw a listener repeating this line on Facebook, so these distortions have a long afterlife. Even if we don't fully understand the new tax, we know why it was imposed. The Pecheneg Wars had drained the treasury. Far from being an emperor neglectful of the army, Monomachos was desperate to find the cash to pay it and make sure the borders were properly defended. From this track record, I have to agree with Antony Cordelis, who argues that Monomachos would not have intentionally weakened the frontier at a time when the empire was clearly under attack. The fact that the emperor was moving western troops east shows how seriously he took the Turks. If he did decommission some frontier forces, then we have to assume it was because he felt the professional troops he needed the money to pay would do a better job. The problem with this defence of Monomachos is that whatever he did did not strengthen the eastern defences. Over the next decade, the Turks will repeatedly trample through imperial barriers rarely met in force by the army. 
and his successors will be overwhelmed by the financial crisis, suggesting that his new taxes did not alleviate this central problem for the government. It seems likely that it was the debasement of the coinage which established a cycle that would trap and enfeeble Monomachos's successors. Because they felt unable to raise the land taxes, they ended up receiving less money back than they had originally minted. The land tax was a fixed amount of coins, after all, and those coins were now inherently less valuable than they had been. Trapped in this cycle, we will see the coins further debased as the government tries to meet its military payroll. The army, faced with pay cut after pay cut, may well have been less inclined to risk its well-being as Turkic raids rolled over the hills each year. And so the cycle continued. Before we get to that, though, we should draw Monomachos's reign to a close. As far as we know, the emperor died of natural causes early the next year. But perhaps getting another dig in, Pselos claims he caught a chill bathing in the extravagant ponds of the Mangana complex, leading one modern historian to cheekily claim that Monomachos was the only Roman emperor to be killed by his love of landscape gardening. Knowing his days were numbered, Monomachos called his advisers together and designated the loyal governor of Bulgaria as a suitable successor to his throne. This rather ignored the fact that Theodora was still alive and residing at a suburban palace. Someone tipped her off about what was happening, and she rushed to the scene to take charge of the situation. The Bulgarian governor was arrested, while Monomachos died peacefully in the first week or so of January 1055. He was in his mid-fifties, and had ruled the empire for thirteen years. He was buried at the Mangana complex that he'd lavished so much attention on. When Monomachos became Vasilefs, it seemed to contemporaries that the empire was as healthy as it had ever been. They had just launched an expedition to Sicily and would soon expand further into Armenia. When he died, the empire was in the midst of a serious crisis. There was no money left, and three dangerous enemies were essentially living within the borders of the empire. For those without knowledge of the wider world, it would be easy to conclude that Monomachos must be to blame. But we know that most of these problems were completely beyond his control. Whatever convulsion had taken place on the steppes around the turn of the millennium, it had ended up biting the Byzantines from both sides. At no point in its history would the Roman Empire have comfortably dealt with simultaneous steppe invasions. The fact that the Normans assaulted Italy at the same moment was just salt in the wound. I think we have to blame Monomachos for the handling of the Pechenegs, though as I said at the time, I doubt if it was his stroke of genius to arm them and leave them unchaperoned in imperial territory. Still, if we largely excuse the emperor from blame for the arrival of these steppe peoples, what about the handling of the financial crisis that followed? Should he have known better than to debase the currency? Was there a better alternative? The other paths that I can imagine involve facing down the army or bureaucracy over a pay cut, 
or facing down the people over an increase in tax. All jobs for an emperor in a much stronger position than Monomachos. And I think that's the tragedy of his rule. He probably would have made a good emperor in better times. He was kind, genial, and interested in justice. He never became a paranoid executioner, despite all the plots against him. And he responded to each crisis with energy and attention, despite his ill health. But he was not the emperor that was needed. Before he came to power, we saw a series of tax revolts, including the Bulgarian uprising. Clearly, the empire was struggling to pay for its expanded borders, a situation which was exacerbated by a series of weak civilian emperors who had to buy political support with tax revenue. What the empire needed was an experienced military commander with modest tastes and the legitimacy necessary to make unpopular reforms. Remind you of anyone? It's worth asking at this point why none of these problems seemed apparent during the last years of Basil II's reign. After all, he led campaigns relentlessly during his time in power. How did he find the money to pay for his wars? The answer seems to be that he built no churches, had no family, avoided court politics, and taxed his elites firmly. In retrospect, the expanded borders may only have been affordable under Basil II. By choosing not to groom a successor, he guaranteed that those who came after him would have to seek legitimacy in those other, more expensive ways. Monomachos was chosen by Zoe because he would not rock the boat, and that guided many of his worst decisions. Instead of being ruthless with the Pechenegs, he was too kind to them. Instead of dealing tough love to his subjects, he debased the coins. It's just hard to blame Monomachos. He'd seen his predecessor torn to pieces by the crowds, and soon after he'd been crowned, the army came in full force to behead him. It's sad to say, but his ability to survive may not have been the best thing for Romania. Perhaps had Leo Tornikios ascended the throne, some of these problems would have been avoided. I know some listeners will be displeased to see me blaming the great Basil II for the decision-making of puny Constantine IX. But there's a certain irony in Monomachos' last decision being to choose a capable military governor as his successor. The governor of Bulgaria had served him loyally and presumably overseen the tricky transition to a cash-tax system just the sort of skills needed in a man about to deal with a major crisis. Whereas instead, Basil's niece was able to regain power, thanks in part to the wellspring of legitimacy that the great Basil had created. And what will she do? Next time, in our narrative, the Empress will choose yet another nobody from the civil administration who won't threaten her position. I'm afraid Act 2 of our narrative ends on this unhappy note, and Act 3 will be pretty unhappy throughout, as the Empire lurches ever deeper into crisis, unable to find a leader to address their problems until it's too late. 
The narrative is going to pause for a short break while I am away leading the first and second tours of Istanbul, which is very exciting. But I will have a couple of Backer Rewards episodes for you in the meantime, and then it will be straight back to the crisis. Thank you.